You may remember with me in the second letter to the Corinthians and the third chapter where Paul is in some respects validating his ministry to the Corinthians. In that context, he states that the Corinthians themselves are his epistle, written in his heart, known and read of all men. He goes on to say, for as much as you're manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ, ministered by us. And then he says, not with ink, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on fleshly tables of the heart. Then he says, in such confidence have we to Godward, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who has also made us able ministers of the New Testament. I was reflecting on that body of text just before coming up. I think I essentially quoted it accurately. I know it's at the front end of 1 Corinthians 3. He begins by saying, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you and so on. But what was particularly drawn up in my spirit just before approaching this pulpit is the realization that what we're going to undertake today, what I am going to seek to administer, I believe is true in the way that I'm about to characterize it, not that I am sufficient in myself to think anything of what I'm undertaking, but because of the sufficiency that is embedded in the ministry, in the calling, and indeed, if you will, the material with which we work. What I have reference to is the idea that I am confident that God will feed His sheep this afternoon out of a portion of Scripture that is comprised of just three verses. It was in my spirit to begin this message with that observation because it so edified my own spirit in preparing this message that there is edification in just three verses and indeed, for the most part, this afternoon, as the Lord allows, we'll be focusing on the first of the three verses. And I just want to round out these initial remarks by stating when I thought about that idea... I was very clear in my spirit that it isn't a vain boast that I am making. In fact, it isn't even the arena of boasting in my spirit. It is but the observation of the power of God. What I am stating is, such is the glory and the wonder and the power of God's Word that there is edification enough in just one verse, or in this case, three verses one portion, and my dear brothers and sisters, that is something that my heart rejoices in. For I know if you approach God's Word with spiritual hunger and the preparation of your heart, then it is not the case that you cannot grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For every single little seed of God's Word is able to produce an abundant crop. I want to bring you to that single portion that is comprised of three verses 
It is a passage that most of you will not need an aid toward remembering what the text numbers are, but this is perhaps a little interesting anecdote that I can pass on to you that crossed my mind. It is one psalm given to us by our triune God, comprised of three verses. It is Psalm 133. Let me read those three verses to you initially here. Then I will state what the title of this look into this psalm is. And I will also give you a subtitle which will comprise the focus this afternoon. Beginning with verse 1. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. The title that I'm going to give you for this meditation in Psalm 133 is looking for unity. Looking for unity. And the subtitle, which will be again the focus for this initial journey within the beauty of this text, is Behold the Beauty. Behold the Beauty. Psalm 133, as I intimated just a moment ago, is certainly a text that the majority of God's children are familiar with. And therefore, we might call it a common seed. And I have a few things in mind when I use that terminology. But for starters, let's reflect on what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 1. He speaks of the fact that God in due time has manifested His Word through preaching. Think of the beautiful idea that is within that remark. With respect to God speaking to His people, with respect to God communicating His will and His ideas in His heart, God has ordained that that occurs through the ministry gift of preaching that Word. God has manifested His Word through preaching. And it was committed, in this case, onto Paul. He says, me, according to the commandment of God our Savior. This enlarges upon the beauty and the sobriety of that which we are looking at when we state that we could call this common seed, and yet you are going to see with me that though that is an accurate remark, it is nonetheless still filled, filled with all sorts of wonder and power and possibility. For think again with me that preaching itself, however many words, however many texts are used, however many statements are said, if it is the Word of God, 
It is a manifestation of God speaking to his people. And it can only properly occur through the vessels that God himself has commanded to carry out that ministry. If that were something that was observed throughout church history, then I dare say that the preaching of even the common seed, as it were, would still be understood to be a very sacred, a very wonderful, a very powerful thing indeed. He says to Titus, my own son, and then this statement, after the common faith, katakoinen pistin, according to the common faith, the faith that is the fellowship faith, the koinonia faith, the faith that God has given us to be within and to share with each other. Dear brothers and sisters, it is a common faith. It isn't a Gnostic understanding. It isn't an understanding that is only available to the magisterial class. It isn't an understanding that is only for the initiated. It is a common faith. It is a faith that God wants us to be very aware of, very conversant with, very familiar. So in that respect... As Paul says to Titus, this is a common faith. But look what comes through this common faith. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I share with you, my brothers and sisters, that in terms of understanding that a common seed nonetheless if it is from God Almighty, it is still something that is designed to do wonderful, powerful things in our lives. And so therefore, we have this seeming paradox, perhaps. I do think it's something that if we're not careful, the devil can play a trick within our experience. Jesus himself said that a prophet is not without honor, except among those that have become familiar with him. In other words, I'm using the principle that if something is common, then maybe we fail to recognize its potentiality and power. And so Paul says this is a common faith. But dear brothers and sisters, I think we have experienced in our lives at times when we're crying out to the Lord for grace and for mercy and for peace. And we would love to think that God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit would be active in bringing these things to our lives. But perhaps we neglect the reading in the meditation of God's common faith and recognizing that this common seed can nonetheless do powerful, mighty things if it is lodged in an uncommon heart. The language that Paul uses in expressing this common faith is used again in a similar way when Jude writes about the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. And he calls this experience and this set of ideas and this ministry that is entailed in this faith, he calls it tes koinies soterios, the common salvation. You know, if you believe in Jesus Christ this afternoon... If you are a child of God this afternoon, then welcome to the family. I count myself among them, and we number at least in the millions, maybe the billions over time. I hope so. 
And so when we assemble before the throne of God on that glorious day and we are myriads upon myriads upon myriads accompanied with thousands and ten thousands and a thousand times ten thousand angels, we will all be in the context of the experience of the salvation of Almighty God. And we will share that. And so in that sense, it's common. But if you think there's anything in terms of just being trite and just to be taken for granted with respect to this common salvation, that I have to wonder, are you really saved? Because the whole experience of salvation, the sort of salvation that we're talking about, when you were dead and set trespasses and sins, where you had a heart that was at enmity with God, where you were under the bondage of the Spirit that works in the children of disobedience, when you suffered the consequences of sin, when you recognized that you were bound by the consequences of your own sin and you felt those cords, and if God broke those binds and if he set the captive free and got you out of jail or rescued you to the shore then you wouldn't call that salvation common even if sundry others side by side with you also had a similar experience it is a salvation brothers and sisters i appreciate the fact that the holy word of god represents itself in this sort of characteristic I won't take the time to compare it with other religious messages. Certainly, classically, for anyone who's trained in this direction, recognizes that anything in the direction of the mystery religions, anything in the direction of the Gnostic doctrines, they present themselves as these deep and difficult and hidden understandings that require a great deal of unique approach and comprehension. It takes years and years and only a few people ever decipher what is actually being stated. But when you listen to the language that we have already presented, and now we have the additional witness of the Apostle John, in the second chapter of his first epistle, he says, He that says that he abides, and I will replace the him, the pronoun, with the proper noun, the proper noun, yes. He that saith he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk even as Jesus walked. Now, if we stop right there, and if we've had some degree of experience in this Christian journey, My mind immediately thinks once again of Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress because I think of anyone who enters into the journey, passes through the wicked gate, follows the counsel of evangelist and starts going down the road that leads to the celestial city is guaranteed to discover that there are manifest, manifold, myriad, various challenges and experiences that come your way. So in other words, as John is emphasizing, if you say you abide in the Lord Jesus, you ought to walk as he walked. And then in terms of how would you arrive at that august, amazing, very high calling, that incredible place where you were walking as Jesus walked, John goes on to say, brethren, 
I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have had from the beginning. What I'm wanting to impress upon your spirit is if anyone would ever read that with some degree of a sense of an anticlimactic juxtaposition of ideas, that is to say, in the previous verse, we are told that if you say you abide in Jesus, then you should walk as he walked. And then one anticipates that one would hear all sorts of intricate and all sorts of new and deep and profound remarks about Jesus Christ and how to enter in to the depths of his heart and spirit. And yet John says, I don't have to write any new commandments onto you. You just have to pay attention to that which was from the beginning. And I believe that there is a admonition within this line of thought. Perhaps the admonition is something along the lines of when we fancy ourselves to be deep walkers in the things of God, when we think of ourselves as reaching forth and reaching on to a deeper walk with God, when we desire or speak about the idea of reading this and reading that and having times of prayer and fasting and talking to the best counselors and that whole range of things in order to enhance our walk with God, in order to reach the heights, in order to come to the depths of understanding. Maybe we're playing a little psychological game without fully realizing it. At least one would hope it wouldn't be self-conscious. Because I'm reading these texts, and these texts are saying to me, you don't need a new commandment. You don't need a bunch of fancy new ideas and fancy new texts. You just need the common seed. That'll do it. If you truly read, if you truly obey, if you truly bring the common seed into your heart, it will do powerful, life-transforming things in you. I think that this is the idea that inspired such remarks as we find sprinkled throughout the Proverbs and the Psalms in particular. Statements such as that which we find in Proverbs 16 and verse 24, pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bone. When I read and think about Psalm 133, the three verses that comprise that single Psalm, while it is a well-known text, yet nonetheless, it is wonderful and beautiful to my soul because it is pleasant words. Sweet to the soul, health to the bones. Psalm 119 and one, verse 103, the psalmist says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The question God has for our hearts at this moment is which particular texts out of my word is sweet to your taste? Are even the common seeds sweet to your taste? I believe this is a measure of where you really stand with God. Psalm 139 and verse 17 says, How precious are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! which is to say every particular thought has its proper weight 
And I understand that when I reflect on how this word of God can have power within my spirit, how it can have its doxology within my being, how its kavod can rest upon me. Every single word of God has its proper weight. And the Bible says that the very thoughts of God are precious. I ask you, brothers and sisters, However many times you have read Psalm 133, is it not still the case that it is communicating to us the thoughts of God? And if it is, then I say to you that it must be precious to your heart. And so I believe that what I've just stated about Psalm 133 and in characterizing it as common seed, and I do very much want to use that language because While preaching on this text, we can also address this more universal concept that applies to other parts of God's Word, and we can do some business on this particular idea, which is indeed what we're doing. For there are a number of places in God's Word, passages, verses, that one could call common seed. I'll give you just a few. Psalm 23, Psalm 91. Psalm 103, Romans 8.28, John 3.16. You get the idea, I trust. And what I'm just saying to you initially, dear brothers and sisters, is that if the Spirit of the Lord is leading the ministry that He is commanded and called to preach from one of these common texts, do you understand the beauty of that very exercise. That what God is essentially saying is that even the most common seed is, as a matter of fact, very uncommon. And the only way by which it truly, simply operates as a common seed, which is to say something we've heard before, something that's not likely to have an impact in my life today because I already know this, I've already heard about it, and all the rest of it. It is only if you are neglecting the lessons of another common seed, and that is Matthew chapter 13 and the parable of the sower. Something that we spoke from during the last two weeks. And as the Lord allows, if His direction stays as it presently is, we will be speaking on that text in another place and not too long. But what I have reference to is this. There is no such thing as a common seed when it comes to God's Word. The only time it's a common seed is if it just simply reaches a common heart. And the common hearts are represented as the hearts in three categories. That is to say, three out of four hearts are common hearts in the sense that the Word of God does not have any lasting, deep, penetrating, life-changing, fruit-bearing, maturing impact. And so you know with me, obviously, if the heart that has the seed cast upon it, that is on the path that is trodden down and walked upon and in no sense prepared, then that seed just is taken away. We're preaching on Psalm 23. We're preaching on Romans 8.28. We're preaching on some idea I've heard before. And it just becomes a common seed. You know why? Because it's never entered into your heart. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, I'm saying this to search your spirits with 
as I must search my own too. I'm saying to you, any part of God's word that doesn't stir you up, that doesn't feed your soul, that doesn't shake your bones, it's only because your heart is just a common heart like so many that disregard the power of God's word. When Jesus said that a sower goeth forth to sow, he did not have to say he has four different pouches. In one pouch he has just common seed. In another pouch he has a little bit more powerful seed. In a third pouch it's even a little bit more potent. And then in the final pouch, he has that dynamic living seed that can really change a life. And that's the seed that falls upon the ground that bears fruit and has roots and grows up and matures and produces 30, 60, or even a hundredfold. He didn't say that. The seed is the seed. It's just the word of God. And when I say just the word of God, what I'm trying to emphasize is that it is the common faith. The seed are the passages that you read in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's the seed. Do you understand that? And it's available to you. And it's preached from week to week. And it's sometimes under the direction of the Spirit of God revisited in terms of ministering on it again. Certainly, one could state, as is always the case, there are balances in any of these remarks. And the balance is that which is outside of the Spirit does not fit into the ideas that I am communicating to you. So if someone is not under the direction of God and decides to preach on John 3.16 week after week after week after week, it isn't, again, so much that it transforms that text into uh, unpowerful verse. It's just that the Holy Spirit isn't agreeing with that ministry and he isn't going to cause it to have the kind of effect that it otherwise would. But what I am saying, though, is even in an assembly, and we agree that the ministry should do more than just evangelize the pews week after week after week. We agree on that. But if the Holy Spirit were to call me or were to call some other minister to preach from John 3.16 to edify our hearts or to call upon you to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith, dear brothers and sisters, even if it is a common seed, even if it's something you know and can quote frontwards and backwards, It'll still rejoice your heart if it's really there. And that's what my point is. You see, when the common seed is lodged within an uncommon heart, then what happens is powerful. Always. Always. It doesn't matter what the seed is. If the sower who is Jesus Christ, if the sower who is the Holy Spirit, if he anoints a particular text to your heart through ministry, through your reading of the word, through whatever means, and that's the text for you on that day, and you have a heart prepared to receive, it will be powerful in your life. I don't care if you've heard it 5,000 times before. Consider, for example, just to put another angle on these ideas. The other angle is in some contrast to, say, for example, Psalm 23, Psalm 91, Romans 8.28, John 3.16. We might say those are all edifying those are all inviting and positive promises. That's the language we'll use. I speak as a man. We'll call it that to make a point. But with respect to what I've been saying about common seed, it doesn't matter how many times you hear on it, hear it, that it is the word of God. It has something to say. Don't we all know how true this is with respect to the third chapter of James' epistle? James' epistle. My brethren, 
Don't be many masters. When I was preparing this message, it struck me. I don't know that I've thought of it this way before, but I thought of the apropos and convenient way by which the King James translators translated didaskaloi. I recognize that in Elizabethan English, what they meant by masters is a teacher. That is a term a bit archaic, but it has historically been used in a synonymous way with the idea that we presently express by the word teacher. But there's a convenient reflection in that when James' point truly is somewhat in this direction, I am not saying the King James translators were trying to get at that. I'm saying I'm taking the convenience of their translation to make the point. Don't be many masters, which is to say the teaching ministry is not a place for you to exercise your attempt or your excursion into being the master and having some sort of authority that you think would be sort of fun to exercise. That kind of remark needs to be repeated again and again. Now, maybe in some sense it doesn't. I'll tell you to whom it doesn't need to be repeated again and again. To the person to whom at some point in their life that ceases to be a common seed because they have an uncommon heart at that moment. And that word goes down into their heart and it changes the way that they live. Because whether it's striving to be a teacher in terms of what I'm doing at this moment, coming behind the pulpit and addressing God's people, or it's a lesser manifestation of that same basic motive where somehow or some other you want to make your name and place and position known and you're falling into that prohibition that James is warning us against. Watch how your heart is working. And certainly, dear brothers and sisters, I say to you that the distinction can be subtle. And we aren't delving into an analysis of how that might look and doing that kind of reflecting at this moment. But I'm just wanting to say as I'm speaking about this, that James isn't saying that there ought not to be any men in the ministry or there ought not to be anyone who shares something to the body of Christ. But again, let me just finish this remark by saying, brothers and sisters, we personally, you are the one, not fundamentally me. You're the one that should be examining your heart as to what is your motive. Are you sure you're under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you sure that you have his mind as to what you're doing in God's house? Are you sure? You need to be very prayerful or thoughtful about that. You need to be on your knees, brothers and sisters, and and listening to messages like this, and and not just this, but all of the messages to, to begin to develop a spiritual sensitivity so you know that these things really matter. Because it's one thing to observe that God will allow us to function in His house at our various levels of spiritual development. I recognize that, and that's part of the story here. But nonetheless, there is a spiritual insight that I'm presenting to you out of James chapter 3. And it did not start with my mind. I am but taking in the Word of God from James And it bears witness with my spirit, my brethren, do not be many teachers, knowing 
that what you do in the house of God is going to be critiqued by God. I don't know what that looks like because I'm not your judge. But I will tell you what I read right here, and it's not a common seed to me in the sense that it doesn't catch my attention. It goes into my heart. You will receive the greater scrutiny because in many things we offend all. We already have that problem. If you don't, I have. I hope to be rid of it, but in many things we offend all. We better be doubly careful of being offensive in the church of Jesus Christ. This is where our Sunday best should show up. And you have to think about, what am I wearing today? You've got to lay it out on the bed. Say, does this match? Does this work? Will this look good? And there are lots of pieces to this that I will not digress into at this moment. But at the end of the day, it's about, did I prepare? Does this all fit together? Was this submitted to God? Does this all work? But again, think about just the sheer idea that James chapter 3 addresses the tongue. And without going any further in reading the text there in James chapter 3, we know, don't we, that if someone says we're preaching from James chapter 3 today, anyone who thinks I've already heard that, it's a common seed in that sense. You know, it's one of, one of those pieces of God's word that's just a common seed. Well, it only is that way because they have a common heart. The problem is their heart. It's not common at all. Every time you hear about the tongue, it causes your tongue to go dry. It causes your heart to grow quiet. It causes your spirit to feel repentant before the man has said a thing. If you're hearing what he's saying, I just said a few things. If it entered into an uncommon heart, then you're not hearing a man. You're hearing God speak to your soul. What about what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10? Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I imagine in many circles, certainly in my experience, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 is a very common seed. For, for example, I know of a place where that particular passage was on the wall of the church where they assembled. And I think that's great. I'm not having any problem with that. And it's something that we can readily quote, readily reflect on. And once again, perhaps if we had a visiting teacher, or I stood up myself or however that would work, and I said, well, we're going to be preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now, please know I am not at all, and I say this with utter sincerity, suggesting that any of you would think that way, what I'm about to state. But I'm addressing these factors, and it's not a matter of addressing you particularly or me particularly in that sense. It is, however, about talking to us about what God wants us to hear. And so what I'm saying again is 1 Corinthians 1.10 may be common in the sense that you know what it says and can quote it, but it is by no means an unpowerful, trite, trivial dime a dozen text. As a matter of fact, we'll be working with some of the ideas that 1 Corinthians 1.10 supports, so I'm not going to take the time to think about that text at the moment. It is, however, similar to what Paul writes to the Philippians. Here is another idea that many are familiar with, but what I'm wanting you to do as I bring these texts to your heart is to recognize 
how powerful the remarks are, even though they're very familiar. And then to ask ourselves, wow, is this verse really doing its appointed work in my spirit? Am I really in full obedience and in full appreciation with what is being said? Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 27. Only let your King James says conversation. The, the ESB translates the same Greek word with manner of life. And the New King James Version uses conduct. You get the idea. It's not just your talking. You might think that if you didn't know how the word conversation is working in this passage. It does entail your conversation. But again, only let your manner of life, let your conduct be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now this idea of being in unity, as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, suppose, as, as a matter of fact is the case, that you would discover that the subject of today's teaching is unity. Would anyone be tempted to think, I more or less already know about that, and so the pastor is just encouraging us again, giving us a little bump in the right direction, let us come to unity. Is it possible, it is not my deep and hidden innuendo, let me make that clear, so that you don't deflect what the Spirit of God would want to say to you because you infer some sort of carnal motivation from the minister himself. But nonetheless, is it possible that the sense that all we need is a little bump in the right direction to just sure things up with respect to unity, a sign that we've never truly opened our hearts to receive with meekness this engrafted word that is able to save your soul out of all forms and manifestation of disunity. Is that possible? That 1 Corinthians 10 is not a common text that is to be taken lightly. If it doesn't have its effect, if it is said and you say, I'm aware of it, but your conduct is such that it doesn't match, then it's just rolling off your heart or it bears a little bit of fruit. But when you have a little trial that tests whether or not you'll be unified with the ministry, with what the church is doing, by and by you're offended or other things grow up, cares of this life and so on, and you find that you allow the weeds of the world to come and choke the life of what that unity is calling you to. And so as a result, without that kind of exhortation, it could be that God is moving his church forward and we gather together again and the pastor says the message is on unity. And you think, oh, well, he's at it again or something to that effect. Or, oh, well, he must think we need a little bump in that direction. And I hope he doesn't meddle too much, but we already know about that. I already know about that. Think of what this text is saying. It's not that we're going to exegete this particular passage, but we are using this array of passages to manifest that there are lots of common seeds out there that still are beckoning our attention. And what I'm about to do with this passage in small portions, and God willing will do more so with Psalm 133, I think demonstrates the point. So, for example... Before Paul says, 
strive together for the faith of the gospel. He says, do this whether I'm there or not. Now, here again, I'm not making innuendos. I've just been around long enough to realize that it can be the case, which is why Paul says this, that if the pastor isn't around, then maybe the unity isn't as valued and respected and lived in, that we're not striving together for the faith of the gospel. Think of that. I won't take the time to emphasize it indefinitely. But think of the beautiful idea that we have presented to us. And by the way, it's not inappropriate for me to use the pastor as a point of reference for what this is all about, because Paul is referring to him. I understand he's an apostle, but he is the spiritual voice and guide among the Philippians in this moment. And God has ordained that same phenomenon wherever there's a true church. That's what unity is about. And so Paul is saying, whether I'm there or not, and that could happen during the week when you're not just present and seeing my face, or it could happen if, in Paul's case, he has to leave Macedonia and go to Asia or some other location. Paul's saying, whether I'm there or not, I want to hear that you Philippians are striving together for the faith of the gospel, not striving against each other, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And since I'll do more with the following idea in the course of these studies, I will only make reference to this observation at this moment. He does not say strive together for any kind of religious construct or any kind of religious formulation or just for your denomination or just for the way that you would interpret the Bible. He says strive together for the faith of the gospel. So I submit to you, if there is a group of people that is fully united, fully activated, fully invested in striving together for something that is not God's word, then it is not a fulfillment of Psalm 133, which just goes to show this is no uncommon seed. And then I want to continue to read the following verses, the 28th for starters that comes obviously just after the 27th. And Paul says, in nothing terrified by your adversaries. One translation has not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, which is to them an evident token of perdition. I'm not sure I understand that passage 100% in its fullness, but I take it generally as meaning If your adversaries see that you're not afraid, they feel like they have the advantage over you. And similarly, as or similar to how they looked upon Christ, we esteemed him smitten of God, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We we think you must be rejected of God. You're assigned to perdition. We can prevail over you, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. I add those verses because I feel that if this doesn't become a common seed text, when a pastor, a brother, a sister, the Spirit of God would speak to our lives and say, we should be striving together for the faith of the gospel to help demonstrate the possibilities and the power and the fullness of what God is saying, I submit to you that there is a correlation 
between the church of Jesus Christ truly manifesting before God this quality of unity and this investment in advancing the gospel of Christ and the anointing of the Holy Spirit on such a place so as to empower them to stand against the greatest wrath that can come against God's people. And if the enemy comes against a church that is not unified, he will devastate it. And so you see, this is not a common text. It is a text that as you think about it and reflect on it and hear further preaching on it, the Holy Spirit will illumine your understanding and see, especially in times such as we live, when we think about our brethren in Afghanistan or saints anywhere, as in many places of the world, uh, fresh, if you will, or increased experiences of persecution are underway, dear brothers and sisters. I don't know if they all see this. I don't know if some are repentant. I don't know if they have enough sense to leave their gift at the altar and go to their brother and sister and first be reconciled to their brother and sister before they get on their knees and ask God for strength. Ask God to raise up a standard against the flood of wickedness. But I'm saying to you, God is saying, there's a place where I command the blessing. And it's in a situation where the Family of God has valued the unity that I demand. And those who live themselves in a state of rebellion, though they be in the church, though they think they have their texts, they are but a part of the spirit that is working in the children of disobedience in these last days in which lawlessness is abounding. And in such a state, the love of the majority will wax cold and the spirit of the Lord does not work and deliver those who have no love. Not ultimately, brothers and sisters, because faith works by love. Not ultimately. I know he's a merciful God, but I've said what I've said. Now, just the text itself, which is to say Psalm 133. One way in which we can acknowledge that it's a common text, but then we can also appreciate the fact that we are talking about the word of God. I don't care what seeds come out of the pouch of the sower. When the sower reaches in his hand and pulls out a handful of seeds, there isn't a single one that you wouldn't want to run after and pick off the wayside or pick off the stony ground or pick off the ground with thorns if you could and get it in a good and honest heart because there's nothing common about the common seeds. I'm saying to you that something that we can observe about the passage itself, Psalm 133, that shows us this paradox is the fact that Psalm 133 is one of the 15 songs of degree, otherwise known as the songs or the psalms of ascent. Sometimes it is referred to as the songs of procession. Now, there is no settled interpretation as to what is being referred to when a psalm is designated as a psalm of degree. But we do know it operated that way among the Jews. And what I'm saying is, whatever interpretation is the accurate one, all of them manifest the same sort of thing. And what is that? It is this. Let's say, for example, as many believe that the 15 psalms or songs, it means the same thing, If the 15 psalms of degree or ascension or procession, let's say that they were the songs that the Israelite 
pilgrims sang en route to the three pilgrim feasts, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. What are we discovering when I say that? What are we discovering is on the one hand, these are the Psalms that they all know. It's like amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A very, very familiar phrase, a very, very familiar set of lines associated with a very, very familiar tune. So in that sense, it's common. But if you're thinking about how it's operating in a God-fearing, godly, spiritual pilgrim coming to the festivals that God has commanded that every male over the age of, I've forgotten what, I think 20, but you look it up, must go these three times throughout the year. In other words, what I'm saying is when the Jewish families are pilgriming to Zion and they're singing these songs, they're not common at that moment. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that it might be common to you, but it wasn't common to them. You follow what I'm saying. Even though they knew it very well. The very fact that Psalm 133 is a song of degrees, I'm trying to just present to your awareness, manifests this irony because it's one of the Psalms that they all learned and they all repeated. But look at the context within which this operated and realize it could be, it should be always fresh and wonderful and edifying and joyful and invigorating and even instructive when I'm gathering together or leaving the experience of going to one of the festivals, something should be welling up in my spirit again that's very calm and captured in three verses. But behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There are other interpretations as to the context in which these psalms were reiterated. But I think I will bypass mentioning those to you because the idea is the same nonetheless. Whether it's when the priests are ascending the 15 steps or various other ideas, just the gradual nature of the procession and the rhythm of the Psalms, it doesn't make any difference. It's the same basic idea that I just relayed to you. So we've looked at Psalm 133, first of all, under the idea of common seed. I have a second primary point to communicate to your spirits this afternoon. And with this, we will conclude this message, though we still have a bit of distance to go to relay the things that are under this head. The second primary point is captured by the words, an uncommon sight. An uncommon sight. I draw your attention to the first verse. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. One expositor has pointed out that unity must have both a moral and anesthetic quality. Unity is said to be both good and pleasant. It has a moral quality and it has an aesthetic quality, a quality of beauty. It is good because it is pleasing to God. It is therefore morally good because it is what God desires and indeed requires. And it is pleasant 
in that it brings delight and happiness to those who experience it. Now, what I want to emphasize under this head of an uncommon sight is primarily taking advantage of the truth that unity has an aesthetic property to it. And I believe that that is captured by the very first word in this psalm, which is the following. Behold, both in the Masoretic Hebrew text, as well as in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, the word from whence we get the English term behold is in the part of speech that is known as an interjection. In Hebrew, the term is hene. In Greek, the word is idu. Both of them derive from common ideas that mean look at. In Greek, orao, or the second aorist of adon. It's formulated actually from the second aorist. But in any event, it means to look at. And what I'm saying to you, the part of speech that is being utilized here is what is known as an interjection. This is what an interjection is. I quote a writer's dictionary. An interjection is a part of speech that reveals the emotions of the speaker. An interjection is typically punctuated with an exclamation point. And indeed, in one translation, the translators have included an exclamation point after the word behold. Who is the speaker? Fundamentally, it is God. I understand it is a psalm of David, and that also is worth reflecting on, that this was a value that captured David's heart. But fundamentally, it's the inspired word of God. And the speaker has an emotion about the beauty of what unity represents, what unity is. And it's relayed to us with this interjection, this Statement that's a single word, but it comes with emotional impact, with an exclamation point. So God is saying to you, and he's saying to me, behold something. He's calling your attention and beckoning your vision and saying, behold. In the well-known Greek lexicon, which some feel is the standard of standards, what is known as the BDAG. I won't get into that. Walter Bauer is the primary lexicographer who put this together. But here is here are some snippets from the Greek lexicon of what the interjective form of the Greek word for behold means and how it's used in context. Listen to some of these snippets. It sometimes serves to enliven a narrative by A, arousing the attention of the hearers or the readers. B, by including something new or unusual. C, as a call to closer consideration and contemplation. I want you to think about what we've just stated there. For there are already hints toward the point that I'm going to be emphasizing in the remainder of this study. The use of this initial word and the form in which it is given by the Holy Spirit is such that 
it should render it outside of the category of a common seed when we think of the common seed as being something that doesn't have anything particularly dynamic, particularly attention-grabbing, particularly deep or arresting about it. It's a text I've known before, heard before, and doesn't everybody know it's nice to see when people get along. No, as a matter of fact, as you will see with me, implied in the very opening word is the idea that God is talking about is something that is an an uncommon sight. It is not commonly seen. It is unusual. He is calling your attention to closer consideration to look on what is before you and to ask yourself, do I see unity? Because if you do, you see something that is good and that is pleasant and that has an anointing and that has the command of God and His blessing upon it. And He will tell you when you see that, it will arrest your heart. It will arrest your soul. It will capture your eyes. And God knows what it, looks, what, it's, what it looks like. And He is saying, look at that. So we know this is a Psalm of David. We know that it became one of the 15 Psalms of degree, or I should pluralize it, Psalms of degrees. But here's a question for you. When was it written? In what context was it inspired? Allow yourself to recognize that in this case, the human instrument is David. Behind David, it is the Holy Spirit. And recognize that It can begin with this interjection because there is a vision to be seen. And the psalmist is saying, Behold, look and see how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So the question that I'm bringing to your hearts is not simply the idea that it's a psalm of David, it's one of the 15 psalms of degrees It was repeated during the pilgrim feast. My question is, to your heart under the head of an uncommon sight is when do you think this psalm was written? What context inspired the psalmist to write? What situation did the Holy Spirit himself validate with the inspiration of these words? The short answer is that it was written when one could say, Behold, let me call your attention to something unusual. Let's take the occasion of this uncommon sight and let my emotions well up in the recognition of what we have available to see and appreciate. And I'm calling the people of God, behold this picture. That's the short answer. To get to the longer answer, I will first preface our journey to that point by stating to you when it was not written. Psalm 133 was not written in the beginning of the redemptive activities of Almighty God on behalf of the fallen human race, which is to say, using Usher's dates here loosely, and perhaps I dip into some other chronologers' dates, but back in 4000 BC, whenever whenever Genesis chapter 4 takes place, And the Lord has to say to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? We know 
On that day, in about 4,000 BC, that passage, Psalm 133, that we're looking at, it wasn't written then. Because you could not say, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For the brother Cain didn't feel like he had any responsibility to look after and care for his brother Abel. And even though God warned him, there's bitterness in your heart, Cain. It's going to break forth into hatred and from hatred to murder. Cain didn't listen to God. So he didn't wind up in the beautiful picture of family unity. He wound up committing fratricide, killing his brother. And the fact that that absence of the beautiful picture of unity that I think some take as a common text and feel like, generally speaking, unity is more or less already here. So why should we hear another message on unity? Don't we already got this? I'm saying to you, the psalmist is saying it's an uncommon sight. And the fact that it's still relevant to recognize that you could not have written it at the beginning of the project of redemption among the fallen human race is captured when John says to the believers, don't be like Cain. Don't allow those inner workings within your spirit that develop you to be Cain-like, even if you say you're a Christian who was of that wicked one, who slew his brother. And then... By the Spirit of God, John reaches down into the motives of the heart. And he says, why did he, why did he slay him? Why did he treat his brother or his sister unfairly and unjustly? It was because his deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were good. And he was jealous and angry that his brother who walked with God had God's favor And he didn't like to see that. And that was breaking down the unity. This is not a common text, brothers and sisters, in the sense that it's just the seed that everybody knows, that everybody is available, everybody is conversant with. If you thought unity is a common idea, it's because you have a common heart. If you have an uncommon heart, that is a good and honest heart that is broken and you're examining yourself and you're not looking at others, you're saying, how does this apply to me? Then with almost every word that is said, you're saying, oh my Lord, help me. Change me, Lord. Put that seed within me because I felt these sorts of things. Don't think that God doesn't know. Don't make God a liar. Don't say, I have not sinned and make God a liar. He knows what's in the human heart. That's why he writes these things. That's why real unity that is good and pleasant and has the anointing and the power of God is so uncommon. Because the idea that we are in unity, of course, because I'm willing to come and put up with you more or less, that therefore I understand unity in the way that God means it. That's why we don't have it. Because we take it too familiar, familiarly. John goes on to say, Don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that does not love his brother abides in death. I suppose you catch the connection of ideas that I think are entirely relevant to the times in which we are and where we are likely headed. The Bible is saying it should not be a marvel that the world hates you. 
But it should be a tragedy and shocking to the church of Jesus Christ. Something that brings them to their knees and they mourn and they wrestle with. When you feel the hatred bubbling up in your spirit, you've got to recognize God knows there's death in your soul. And when the hatred of the world is coming more and more against God's church, if you are a good discerner and you see the signs of the times, you better be worrying that judgment is becoming, is coming to the house of God and he's going to seek out that leaven. And you better get the hatred out of your heart. And we're talking about your brother or sister in Christ. I'm not talking about the world right now. I'm talking about your brother and sister in Christ. Psalm 133, we're seeking. When do you think this was written? What was the context when Psalm 133 was inspired and the Holy Spirit validated and it was all there and the vision was there and he said, Behold, look, see how good and how pleasant it is. Capture this moment. Well, it was not written in 1471. Whenever Numbers chapter 16 took place, three men and more, but three men in particular, one named Korah, the sons of Korah, but Korah himself, another named Dathan, and another named Abiram. We're told in the third verse of Numbers 16, they gathered themselves together against, not with, against Moses. And that wasn't enough, which just manifests the problem is with them. They don't like Moses. They don't like Aaron. They like themselves. They're comfortable with themselves, but nobody else against Moses and against Aaron. And they said unto them, you take too much upon you. This isn't a recipe for unity. This is what we call deflection and projection and hypocrisy. You take too much upon yourself, seeing the entire congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. How many people made it into the promised land out of this congregation? Two. Maybe Moses had a burden in his soul to preach to their lives and other lives to get them prepared. Maybe that was his calling. Maybe that was his enabling. And yeah, he struck a stone. And I'm not saying it happened prior to this moment, but I'm saying at best they might have seen some things in him that they might have thought weren't exactly their cup of tea. But my, 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 in the same way that they describe themselves to a T while accusing him reflects the fact that they cannot appreciate the thousand things that Moses did for their life. And when Moses heard about this, I don't know that this was exactly what the motive was, but I think I can state it this way. He was so embarrassed for the people of God that he fell on his face. He just hid his face. They weren't hiding their faces, but Moses just fell on his face just to say, God... I'm so embarrassed. How can we be like this, Lord? How can you have done all of this for our lives? How can you have used me as your instrument in so many occasions? And this is what happens. Psalm 106 digs in a little bit more deeply about this series of events. In verse 16, it says, They envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. It really does matter how you think about these things, doesn't it? For example, what kind of saint was Aaron when he was building the golden calf? He was the saint of the Lord because God had set him apart as the high priest. That's how. He was wrong, but he was God's anointed. And I know we've lost this, generally speaking. 
And there are manifestations of it in all kinds of directions, among them not honoring your father and mother. But once upon a time, there was a disposition among the godly, and that is you do not just frivolously stand against God's ministry, his anointed. And I understand the anointed in a certain context applies to God's general people too. I understand that. I'm saying that for good measure. Maybe I shouldn't even say that and just risk that you think I don't know that these things are in the text because the real point is David would not lay his hand on Saul because he was the Lord's anointed. So there was no unity in 1471 BC. That's not when this psalm was written. Nor was it written in 1322 BC or somewhere in that time frame during the era of the judges. How do we know? Because we're told in the very last verse of that whole conglomeration of nonsense, you might say, well, there's some happy moments. I fully agree. And has that not been the nature of church history, more or less? There have been some happy moments, but will church history end in the way Judges chapter 12 and verse 25 ends when you sum up the whole conglomeration of the whole thing? It's Mainly a bunch of nonsense. Why? Because in those days, the children of Israel, who could not understand the, the idea of the sovereignty of God and the kingship of Almighty God, and the only way they would even approximate some sort of unity is if they had some king, some leader that fit their itch and made some impressive presentez-vous to them with his degrees or whatever the rest of it is. God forbid you'd have a Timothy or a Titus or some other something along those lines about whom Paul said, let no man despise thy youth or anything along those lines I'm getting at. We could use parents here, which would be a very legitimate application. We do need unity in the home as well. And I'm saying... It isn't about honor your father and mother if they fit your cup of tea. It's honor your father and mother because God told you to. And so what I'm saying is in those days there was no king. You know what I mean, right? The king should have been God. But they were so spiritually immature. If you understand what I'm saying, that was not even a possibility. It was what they needed, but that wasn't even a possibility that they would actually submit themselves to God. And lacking the great name, lacking the impressive minister, there was no unity. Because everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. Suppose I was a less imposing figure. I don't know how imposing I am. Maybe too imposing. The church is small. I don't know. You know, you could cut that all kinds of ways. But suppose that I didn't know the original languages to the extent that I do, which is fairly minimal in Hebrew, not so minimal in Greek. But suppose I didn't. Suppose I wasn't as well read as I am. Suppose I couldn't carry an argument as I sometimes can. Could I still be the Lord's appointed pastor for you? Yes, in theory, probably not, as a matter of fact, for some. Maybe not you, but you know it's the case. So when do we behold this unity? Hmm. Well, let's keep looking. It wasn't in the book of Judges because everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes. That's not unity. It did not happen in 1027 BC when Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate you know, to the king's quarters, to David, his father's home. 
And we're told further in 2 Samuel chapter 15 here, starting with verse 4, Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which had any suit, any legal issue or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so, that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand, he took him, he kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now I think Absalom, those that were aligned with him, they were probably saying, Behold, how good and how pleasant is this unity among the brethren. But that is not when David wrote Psalm 133. He didn't look out his window, see his son conspiring against his leadership, no doubt knowing in his heart that he had failed God. David did. But in addition to the burden, the pain of the failures that he had, he also has to deal with his son Absalom taking advantage of what appears to be his weakness and beginning to, beginning to manipulate and beginning to cajole the populace against him. And so there came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. When those sorts of things occur in the home, in the church, we're not going to behold unity. Well, we haven't really found it in the B.C. days to speak of so far. So let's try the A.D. days. That is, Anna, come in, somebody help me out. Say it again. Anna Domini. At least I know enough not to say after the death. <laughs> Though that works, it is, it is after the Lord in the Latin. Year of the Lord, thank you. So let's try the year 90 AD. Could that psalm have been written in the year 90 AD? Well, no, or I should state, not if you were somewhere in Asia. I'm not sure if I even know for sure where it would have been. Might have been in Ephesus. I don't know if anybody knows when I, I've preached on this text, and I'm not sure that we know where the location was. But anyway, when the Apostle John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, would not receive us. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm saying there was someone by the name of Diotrephes, now in 90 AD. We've already seen it in Korah, Dathan, Abiram. You'll see with me that we could have used a lot of passages in the Bible and say, nope, not there, nope, not there, not there, nope, not there, not over there, not over there, not over there. And you start to realize, the question is, when could you behold this? And you see, this isn't such a common text. But when Diotrephes was having a good time of it, you follow what I'm saying. He just had one little problem. Could be a sister. What would we call the sister? Diane, or maybe I should use a more uncommon name lest somebody think I'm speaking at them. Demetrialis loves to have the preeminence. You see how that goes? Let me just balance this out. I was talking a moment ago about, you know, I'm looking at my two sons and I can look at daughters and so on and talk about honoring your father and your mother, which I'm not changing that at all. But now I'm going to talk to myself and I'm going to say, do I love to have the preeminence? Because that's not going to help unity either. If the way I carry out my authority is I just throw my weight around and I'm basically making the argument, I'm here, I'm in charge, and your voice doesn't matter. 
So get it straight. That's, that's not what we're talking about. And so we're going to keep searching. Where is this unity? Where can we behold it? And lots of people think, just behold it. It's, it's, it's in my home. It's, it's in your home. It's, it's in the church. It's in most churches. Not what the psalmist thinks. He is saying, behold, here it is. I'm emotionally captured in the moment. Look at this unity, how good and how pleasant it is. There God commands the blessing and other things that we'll get to in due time. But I'm saying, here's a man named Diotrephes. I don't know what his story is. He might have been set in the ministry by John. He probably was. But we're all unknown quantities, aren't we? I'm not saying Judas was unknown to Jesus in the fullest sense, but Judas became what he did, as did Peter in terms of denying Christ. And however you want to think about this, it isn't Paul's, John's fault for supporting Diotrephes and helping his ministry and so on. But Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence. You know what people do who take these texts as common texts? Just rolls right off of them. Is it rolling right off of you? Just rolls right off of you. In other words, you know you probably shouldn't, but I probably still will. In other words, I won't when you stop. Maybe not even that sophisticated. In other words, it just doesn't mean anything to me. It might mean something for a moment, but as soon as the first test comes, by God... I'm going to find a way to have the preeminence. You know, the real heart of this message for all of us, as always should be the case, is the love of Jesus Christ for your soul. Because I'm telling you in Afghanistan, and I think it's right that we pray about Afghanistan. Please, please know that. Please also know, as I'm sure you all do, it has just been raised in your attention. It has foamed up to the surface. There are people all over the world, and there has been this way, that are undergoing very similar things all the time. And I'm saying to you that when they want to cry out to God for deliverance, you might not think this is true, but you haven't been in the fire yet. When that fire tries the gold, if you have any, and I'm speaking to all of us, if you have any, sometimes it just all burns up. But if you have any gold... Oh, that, that's not a comfortable thing. You ever see a boiling pot of gold? It's not a pretty feeling. It's, it's ugly. It's awful. It's uncomfortable. That's what this persecution is about. You understand? That's what's coming our way. It's not going to be like nifty key, easy. A few little moves that I overcome is going to be difficult. You're going to need to cry out to God for help. What's going to rise up to the surface of your soul, as a matter of fact, is the echo of what God has preached to you over the years. And it won't be an uncommon text then. What I'm trying to say is, Diotrephes was having a good time of it. He was just going on his merry way. While John was getting the revelation of what was coming. You know, giving the true word of the Lord to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Filled with analysis. Filled with critique. Filled with God saying, you better get your life right. And meanwhile, John's not even letting people come and bring letters and bring... He said, I wrote to the church. Diotrephes won't receive it. Which means, if it's literal in the way I'm telling you, it means he's not receiving the letter that is the word of God telling him what's wrong with his life. So like with Laodicea, the present experience is not going to remain the same, as Jesus said to the Laodiceans. Then also we know that this unity was not beheld in A.D. 55, Whenever Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, Now this I say, that every one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. 
Here again, what we're reading about is perhaps more common in actuality than Psalm 133 is just a common text. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, as a matter of fact, what's really common is a little bit of, I'm, I'm, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. I, I more agree with this one, I more agree with that one. But before I conclude what we're sharing with you this afternoon, I want to mention a few other occasions where we do not find it, and then I will submit to you where we do find it. I have presented to you, by and large, various scenarios in which there were overt divisions within the family of God, within the people of God, and you don't find it there. But nor was it found in 2000 BC, whenever what happened in Genesis chapter 11 occurred, there we read, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And they all agreed together. They all were very happy to work together. They had a building project in mind. It was a religious building project. It's something like a church or an edifice. They pulled their money together. They took time out of their busy schedules. They put aside family interests. And they all joined together and they built a city and they built a tower. And they had the idea of let's make it big and impressive. So they made it reach onto heaven. And they thought they should put their name on it. And they said, you know what? We really want to stick together. We've agreed among ourselves. It's best if this family of God, if this group of people, if we find a way to be unified. So, Fred, Jane, Sally, let's agree together. Let's unify and build something. Put our name on it. And let's not be scattered. Let's be brethren in unity. That was not when Psalm 133 was written, when God looked down and said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is to see brethren dwelling together in unity. But nor was this psalm written in 906 BC, when once again there was a gathering of a lot of people. On this occasion, they were on top of a mountain of all things, a scenic view. We're saying that this is something of the aesthetic that is captured by how good and how pleasant it is. It's something to look at. It's something that when you see it, it touches your soul. And here they are on the top of Mount Carmel of all things. And they're gathered together. And the people see the hand of God move in a mighty way. And the fire consumes the sacrifice and the wood and the stones. And licks the water up out of the trench. And all the people in unison say, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And you might think that that could have been an occasion. Or some context within which the Holy Spirit could have inspired these words and said, Behold! How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. One wonders if Elijah felt in that moment some sort of stirring. Did he feel something in his heart where he opened his eyes? He saw what was happening and he was enlivened. He was invigorated. I doubt it because the Spirit of God was not in it. And I guarantee you he saw that seeming unity and that seeming agreement, but something in his soul that he himself did not even understand was not at all satisfied because it wasn't born of a development and a growth and an inner change that was truly breaking down self and building up common Christ-likeness among the people. 
It was but the momentary reaction to a miracle and the capturing of some sensational event and they had nothing else to say that was more intelligent in the moment to just say, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. But in a few hours or on the next day, they would say, minister, go shift for yourself. We're not going to come and help you from Jezebel. Good luck. No, it wasn't there. Because on that occasion, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, and that started in, that happened in 30 AD about, so it wasn't either present in this moment when Jesus is quoting Isaiah, which occurred in 712 BC. In other words, Isaiah originally prophetically stated what I'm about to read to you that Jesus quoted in Matthew 15 and 30 AD. So Isaiah didn't see unity. Jesus, when quoting Isaiah, wasn't seeing unity at that moment. So he couldn't say, this is what Isaiah said, and you guys are doing this wrong. But turn your shoulder. Look on the other side. Now there is unity. Jesus had no one to point to to show the Psalm 133 type of unity, if you're following what I'm saying. But Jesus said to his generation, quoting what Isaiah said to his generation, and if Isaiah, excuse me, if Elijah understood what was going on at Mount Carmel, in spite of them saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, instead of gathering up the 400 prophets of Baal, which I don't so much disagree with, but he probably would better, would been better off to leave them alone and stand on that burned up altar and preach to them and say, you hypocrites! Well, will Isaiah prophesy of people like you? You draw near unto God with your mouth. You honor Him with your lips, but your heart is far from God. So this seeming worship is vain. Because regularly speaking, in your churches, in your practice, you place the traditions of men in the place of the commands of God, and you get together, and you celebrate, and you call it unity, and it's not. The thing about which I would say, behold, how good and how pleasant it is to finally find the beauty of brethren in unity. Moving to the New Testament, it was also not found in 96 AD, wherever the Laodiceans were gathered together, a seemingly large church, especially in comparison to Philadelphia. And they viewed themselves in the following manner. I am rich and I am increased with goods and I have need of nothing. Do you sense something of what that would generate into in terms of a consensus feeling of unity? As you look at yourself and your brethren in the church and you have some money and you have some goods and you feel like it's all working for you. You don't really have need for much. God's just blessed you and given you everything you desire. And that's how the Laodiceans felt. And they might have read Psalm 133 and thought they'd agreed with it and said, as a matter of fact, we know this text really well. And, and it's beautiful. We already know about it. Look at the unity. Look at the manifestation. Look how we get along. But about that situation, Jesus said, you don't know. When I look on you, I don't rejoice. I don't call the angels and say, behold. I say, you are a grief to my soul. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. Similar things could be said about those that were in unity under the ministry of Jezebel. 
in Thyatira or had a collective commitment to the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans in Pergamos or within Sardis when all of them called themselves Christians and they all had this name and they traded it back and forth with each other and they anointed each other as being Christians and walking with God and being born again, but about which Jesus said, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. Or in Ephesus, when there was a unity around cold discernment, when the church collectively had a good discernment, they knew who the apostles were and who the apostles weren't. And they were able to discern the signs of the times. They knew who was up and who was down, who was on first, second, third, hold, out. They knew all of that. But into that situation, Jesus did not say, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is to see brethren dwelling together in unity. He says, You have unity around a cold-hearted discernment. Nor did it happen in A.D. 313 when the Edict of Milan took place. And within that general context, when the church ceased to be persecuted, so we're told. And the Roman Empire embraced the church, and the church embraced the Roman Empire. And there was a massive influx of new believers into the churches such that they needed to build cathedrals and edifices and so on and so forth. And Constantine himself was happy to call councils and other types of gatherings to sort out differences so that we wouldn't have Arianism vying with Athanasianism and whatever else so that we could be unified and we made decisions and we unfortunately had to excommunicate certain other individuals. But at the end of the day, the Roman Empire, Orthodox Christianity was unified. And when God looked into that, he said, behold, it was a rough time under the first post-apostolic eras when persecution happened. But at last, it is paid off. Behold how good and how pleasant it is to see all of Europe, to see all of the Roman Empire unified in the Christian faith. No. No. What you would have heard from heaven, if you were listening, was a voice that is still speaking. And John tells us about that voice. He says in Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. And I don't know if it's 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%, 80%, 90%, 90%, or 99.9% of the church doesn't even know what I'm talking about when I draw the connection between the Edict of Milan in AD 13 and the quotation of Revelation chapter 18, which is saying, come out of Babylon for this unification around the trappings of the golden calf and the idolatry of paganism is not the unity that Psalm 133 is speaking of. So in closing, when was it written? Well, traditionally, it is suggested that Psalm 133, remember, it's one of the 15 Psalms of degrees. Traditionally, it is suggested that Psalm 133 was sung when the Jewish pilgrims were returning to their homes after experiencing the beauty of unity during the feasts of Yahweh. So when could it have been written? On one occasion, 
when there was a genuine unity, perhaps under David's reign, in which there was a manifest godliness and deference to Almighty God with a truly anointed leader and a magnifying of the Lord's house and a sense of how amiable and how pleasant it is to come to God's church, to come to God's house. That's what David had to say. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord, when a man who had that in his heart was leading God's people and the pilgrims gathered and they actually exercised true God-fearing unity and the Levitical um, priesthood with their assigned trumpets and harps and dulcimers and all the rest of it sang the Psalms of David and collectively rejoiced in the presence of Almighty God and then having experienced the beauty of that when they went back to their homes with the fresh memory of that unique experience where God in a special way commanded the blessing then it might have been then when David said behold instead of looking at Bathsheba He is looking at the collective people of God and their various simplistic lifestyles. But they love Jesus and they're they're going back with justice and love and mercy in their hearts. Having been touched by God, hearing the word of God spoken afresh, seeing the day of atonement or something along those lines. Going back to their houses to share and to be kind to one another. David, as a servant unto God, could have looked at that assembly and felt in his heart, who? Who am I, this shepherd boy from the hills of Bethlehem? But look at what I'm seeing here. Thousands upon thousands that are in unity and loving one another and would fight the battles of Yahweh and they would, they would put up their own lives for the one next to them or the one they don't even know in some other tribe. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Or it could have been written in A.D. 51 when Paul said to the Thessalonians, as touching brotherly love, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And I would submit to you, how were they taught of God? In the context of pressures. And it doesn't have to be the pressure of persecution, dear friends. There are pressures on your life right now. There's a pressure, for example, in this moment. I've gone a little far in time as far as I'm aware. So if nothing else, there's the pressure of that on your life. And yet God can teach you to love me and I love you and we'll continue to love each other throughout the rest of this day. What I'm trying to say is what's going on in your home at the moment? What's going on in your life at the moment? God is trying to teach you to love one another. Thankfully, the Thessalonians were listening in the time of their persecution. God himself, he says, is teaching you to love one another. I'm saying to you when God is teaching his people himself and the circumstances are occurring within which God's people are yielding their hearts to the influence of the Spirit, one of the fruits of which is love, then you can see the fruit of that and you will say, Behold, look what's happening. Look how good and how pleasant it is to see this unity, this true biblical unity that is developing. And I want you to know Whenever Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he didn't just say, here's a general idea. God might teach love every once in a while. He said, you're taught of God. Then he said in verse 10, and indeed you do it. That's key. That makes all the difference. And indeed you do it. 
toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But then he says, but we beseech you, brethren, increase more and more. And I submit to you here also is another test to see whether these ideas are in the wrong sense, common seed to your heart. Because when you really begin to develop in the spiritual quality of biblical unity, then you have a desire for it to increase more and more, even though it's been hard to get there, even though it's required much crucifixion to break out. But when unity, blessed of God in the Spirit, begins to happen in your midst, when the presence of God begins to show itself as He evidences His pleasure to see His family actually getting along, and in the right reasons, striving together for the faith, submitting to the leadership, thoughtful about what they're doing in God's presence, watching their motives, then you want it to increase more and more. And so does God, by the way. That's why Ananias and Sapphira fell dead. I'm saying to you, you want it to increase more and more. When you get a taste of this, dear brothers and sisters, then you become very jealous of it. And certainly we must never allow it to devolve into the situation where pastor or somebody else takes a rod and hits somebody when they are breaking up the unity. Oh, what a temptation such things are. But nonetheless, I submit to you that had Moses not hit that rock, the rock might have hit the Jews on its own in that moment. He was wrong because God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I'm not speaking vengeance against God's people, but I'm using the principle The Lord is the judge. He will judge his people. It's a more complicated story that I'm going to try to unfold right this moment. But perhaps it was written or could have been written in 64 AD when Peter says to some Christians, seeing that you have purified your soul in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Well, you know, I'm sensitive to to the concept of the baskets being full. You understand that. I am. I don't have a great deal more to say, but it may be wise if I consider pointing you in the direction of some of these other texts when we revisit Psalm 133, the Lord willing, next Sunday. But I will give you, ultimately, if the Lord so directs, other texts for us to think about some beautiful places within which unity is occurring. And we'll also look into some of the attending spiritual qualities that bring this about. For example, just to finish the brief little idea I stated a moment ago, when Peter says, seeing you have purified your soul in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. What I'm trying to say is, these are not common ideas. You don't arrive at the love of the brethren until your soul is purified through obedience to the truth that the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart. And I say the churches in general do not let the Holy Spirit guide them into all truth. They substitute a unity around men's doctrines and men's traditions, which will never purify your soul. It's when you decide that you will obey God as the people of God, as a collective family of God, whether it's two, three, or 15, or 20, or 400. 
That's the context is when you get your soul purified individually and collectively. And it's a process, brothers and sisters. It's through submitting to the trials. You need good preaching, by the way. You need a whole council message to bring you to the challenge of the truth that you must obey so your soul will be purified. Then and only then can you really love the brethren in true, biblical, beautiful unity. I'm trying to say to you, if you haven't figured it out, that when Psalm 73 says, Behold! And we ask ourselves, when did that take place? It might be that 80%, 90% of what you have in the Bible, let alone human history, is a time frame and a context within which it could not possibly have been then. Do you understand what I'm saying? Look in your own life. Look in your own history. If you analyze it properly, you would be more honest to say, I could not have beheld it then. It was not there. Instead of, oh yeah, we all got unity. No, the way it's written is an interjection. This is something beautiful that will take your breath away. And so we'll deal more with that. But I just like the way that after we look at several texts, especially if time had allowed today, and I dealt with a few further texts, which I may revisit, but for the interest of time and wearing out the saints, which is something that the Antichrist does, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to wear out the saints in any kind of way that isn't in the mind of God, so we won't do that. Um, but I like the way that one final text could be utilized in this line of reflection, and it Sounds very apropos because Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 starts with finally, finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one on another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, do not render evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are thereon to call that you should inherit a blessing. For, for, Peter says, oh, he says, saints, for, if you would grow in this, I have to give you a common text. Peter is saying, I've got a common text in his own ministry. I've got Psalm 34. You might have all heard it, but this is what you need to grow in the love of the brethren. He that will love life and see good days, refrain your lips from speaking evil. Refrain your tongue from guile. Eschew evil and do good. Seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. I'm not sure how Peter quoted that text, but maybe he quoted it with an interjection type style, with invested emotion, with an attention grabbing way of saying it and giving them something that, well, that's a few verses. Psalm 133 is just three verses. And I said at the outset, and we're only going to look at one verse out of the three mostly. And we mostly looked at one particular word and we've seen how powerful the Word of God is if we open our hearts to what it's saying. And don't let the devil take that statement and steal it out of your heart as it's sown. Because it's the Word of God, brothers and sisters, that liveth and abideth forever. And I'll let you think about the implications of what Peter says there in 1 Peter 3, 8-12. through 12. But dear brethren, what if beautiful brotherly unity turns out to be a necessary condition that God himself must behold 
before he commands the blessing. What if? Are you hearing what I'm saying in closing? What if, though the focus has been the query to our own hearts as to, do you behold it in 4000 BC? Do you hold, behold it in 127 BC? Do you behold it here? Do you behold it there? We've said mostly no. And then a few times, yes, yes, maybe. But what if part of the point is until God beholds that beautiful unity that he's talking about, that captures his heart and his attention, he's not going to command the blessing, even life forevermore. Then you might find yourself terrified by your adversary because the Bible links together the people of God that are so in love with Jesus and consequently so in love with each other that they're striving together for the faith of the gospel and that's why they're being persecuted. It's not persecution is weeding out the tares from among the wheat. The tares are not going to make it. And if a particular assembly is just filled with tares, brothers and sisters, I don't know. I don't know. Was Laodicea going to have the blessing commanded into them? Was Ephesus going to have the blessing commanded into them? Was Sardis going to have the blessing commanded into them? Not the way I read it. Not unless you do something about what's going on in this church and get it straightened out. Is that not correct? He said, I'll take your lampstand away. He said, I'll spit you out of my mouth. What do you think that looks like when Alaric the king and the Visigoths come, whether there, I know where that is in Asia Minor, but what is it going to look like when they come to your doors and you're allowed to see a rich and increase with good and have need of nothing but Jesus on the outside and he cannot behold unity and doesn't care to open the door for what he'll see if he does. He's sick enough in his stomach on the other side. And dear brothers and sisters, I'm saying you can think what you want. You're not going to make it. You will be thrown with that wicked prophetess Jezebel into great tribulation. And maybe you'll learn your lessons there. I apologize if you think that's stern, but only as a man to people I love, because I'm only telling you what the word of God says. Do we behold this unity among ourselves as brethren? Would you increase more and more? Do you desire to see God command the blessing? Then I would suggest that you appreciate the little church of Philadelphia that had brotherly love. And they were small. They had a little bit of strength, but they were going to do just fine. And Jesus told them as much. You're going to do just fine. In fact, you're going to do so fine that when things really get hot, I'm just going to take it right out. You say, that's cheating. It's not cheating. They already paid their dues. They learned how to love each other. That's not cheating. You already purified your soul. You already went through the fires. And so God says, I want you closer because it's so beautiful what you are. I want you closer. So I'm going to catch you up to the throne of God. Well, my dear brothers and sisters, I hope that if the Lord allows, you will have it in your heart to gather together again next Sunday so that we can speak more about this and behold more of what it looks like so that then we can look within ourselves and see where we have it and where we don't and see how to increase more and more and get everything in its proper balance and so on. And it might even be that the message is a little shorter next Sunday. 